Welcome, everyone, to uh, another episode of the H2O podcast. Um, this week, we have a very special guest, and uh, his name is Omari. Uh, if you are in the college ministry, you probably have not met him before. If you are in the church at large, you probably have. I don't know. But um, before I speak anymore, why don't I just let Omari, why don't you introduce yourself and just kind of tell us um, just a little bit about who you are and kind of what brought you to this podcast today. All right. Hi, everyone. Um, so I've been with GCCC for, I think, like three years, I'm going to say. Um, <clears throat> and aside being from, you know, being a part of the church community, um, I'm an educator and I've been a teacher for almost 10 years, it's like Ooh. seven, eight or nine. I always forget which one. Um, but yeah, I mean, I kind of ended up on this podcast by degrees, right? Like Tony reached out to me because he and I text back and forth, you know, about uh, just, you know, like discussions on race and identity perspective and, and kind of how to get the good word out, not just about, you know, reconciliation, but also about our role as uh, Christians. And it's funny because even now on this podcast, like I always stop and I look at myself and I'm like, dude, how did you, how'd you get here? How do you get yourself into this situation? Cause I don't like, we're starting up this initiative right now, uh, which I won't go into too much cause it's in its infant stages, but even that initiative, I don't see myself as any form of a leader. I'm not trained or equipped for it, but it's more of a place of if you don't say something, then you have no right to expect anyone else to. And that I think is pretty much how I keep finding myself in above my head in different conversations. But, you know, you gotta, I'm going to keep ending up in them because if I don't say something and no one else does, then everything continues as it is. Yeah. And I'll say, Omari, uh, and I've told you this before, but, you know, when, you know, at, at this point, it feels like years ago, but it was only just earlier this year. Right. When protests started happening after the death of George Floyd and I was absolutely looking for some way for the church to be involved, like G trip specifically to be involved, not just in conversations, but like in action in change and all of these things, you know, Omar, you were a person who I immediately felt like channeled that same energy and channeled that same perseverance through it all. So I just, you know, you are, I appreciate you so much. And I've literally never met you in real life because I've only ever met you in the Zoom era. So I can't wait to like, I don't know, hopefully at some point next year, we can get together and just like relax and chill and reflect on the past year. But Omari, I'll just say like, um, no, you have, you might not see yourself as a leader, but like what even is the worth of a title? But you definitely you know, are somebody who is a strong voice and has persevered for like all these months, you know, because churches kind of move slow. And, and we both know that and we both have frustrations with that, especially on the topic of racial justice. And um, I think a lot of the way in which we speak on these things can kind of slow that change down. 
So I know, you know, Omari, when I reached out to you, I was just like, hey, you know, what do you want to talk about? We can kind of go into any sort of topic. And I guess if you wanted to expand upon, you know, what specifically you wanted to kind of bring up on this podcast today, and then we can kind of get into it after that. Yeah. So when you asked what we what we could talk about, what I might be wanting to talk about today, what jumped out, I, I remember I can't remember everything, Tony, but I remember I sent you like four or five different potential topics, just things off the top of my yeah. head, right? <laughs> but the one that really stuck for me was education and the intersection between being an effective teacher, having a voice ministering without, you know, like crossing lines as I teach in a public school. And then also trying to push this conversation on, on race and identity, because when we were texting about it, it was on the heels of something happening in my classroom. I had essentially gotten my wrist slapped by a parent for having conversations on race. And I was still, and am still unpacking that scenario because it was like the conversations we were having at the time were not they were certainly not in the explosive territory, believe you me. We were still speaking with those platitudes and generalities that the education system is more comfortable with. Mm. So the fact that a parent still saw fit to send an email, to take action to send an email saying that we were crossing lines was like, man, if this is, if this is the part that makes people upset, do we as a community really even understand what we mean when we say uncomfortable conversations? We clearly all have very different perceptions on what the term means, mm-hmm. you know. So that's what I wanted to talk about is our role as educators and, and, and what we should really do and kind of illustrating for the listenership what an uncomfortable college co- conversation, excuse me, really implies. Mm. Yes, I think that's super important. Um, are you do you mind kind of going into what that exchange was or is it something yeah. that you can't really go into because of, you know, confidentiality, et cetera, et cetera? No, no, okay. I don't mind at all. Yeah, um, I would love you could give just some details on it. Yeah. Yeah. So at my school, the, the book's over here. I, I can't get it. But we're reading a book called All American Boys. Right. Um, and the book, it, it examines the a situation where a young man is beaten to a pulp by a police officer. Um, in a situation where ra- racial profiling goes way out of hand, right? Um, and for the young black man, his, he is, spends the entire book in hospital trying to figure out what happened and whether he did something wrong and whether he should have done something differently. And it brings in all these different dynamics with his family's response, his father as an African-American man, um, and the frustration and vitriol with which he responds not to the officer who beat his son, but to his son, essentially... I, I won't get too much into the book, but we, we chose to do this book as a ninth grade team because in the aftermath of George Floyd's death and so many others, right? I mean, everyone mentions George Floyd now, but I think we should also nod to the fact that his death is not the beginning of the conversation, that this goes back so far. His is so, so sadly just another checkpoint in this overall, like thing right but we decide to do this book and discuss um issues of race and identity and inequality while teaching students writing right um 
and I should also add that I teach at an at a very affluent but mostly progressive school, right? Hmm. Now, a parent emailed me and essentially said, and it was weird because they prefaced it by saying that they had spent time talking to their son about George Floyd's death and that they think that discussing race is really important. And then they went on to say that we English teachers needed, however, to stay in our lane and not focus on that conversation and instead teach students how to write. Mm. And I remember at the time, I was still in such, I was in a pretty bad place um, when this email came, just because I, I was teaching this literature while at the same time in my heart carrying so little hope for the human condition. Mm. Because to me, especially as an African-American man, I'm so tired of trying to get this conversation pushed forward right. while at the same time being met consistently with indifference and skepticism that I was teaching the book that, but I was like, I mean, what, what, what's the point, you know? So when this email came through, I actually forwarded it to my boss, the head of the English department and was like, can you just help me come up with a reply? Cause I'm, I just don't have the energy. And I was really encouraged by what she helped me to, to write, which was essentially a response that said, our English department has always endeavored to at once teach students skills necessary for um, the future and help to construct better human beings. And even though the schedule has changed to two days a week rather than five, we will continue to, en to endeavor to do so, mm. right? And in this point, this book is not only important for its narrative techniques, but also because this subject is important. Mm. Um, and then that was just the end of the email. And I was pretty hyped up because... Yeah. Right now in this day and age, a lot of the, it seems like a lot of higher ups are more interested in the appearance of progress rather than yes. actually making progress. So it was cool for my boss to actually show me that she would still put her money where her mouth was. Hmm. That's awesome. Did the uh, parent respond in any sort of way? Did you get anything from there? To my eternal surprise, no. Oh, okay. She didn't respond, but... Um, I've always wondered, to be honest, if anything else came of that, because it's very yeah. unlike parents in this community to let it go like that. <laughs> so what I suspect is that I probably got a complaint put in and my boss just buried it um, without letting it get back to me, because I know that she's done that in the past for complaints about teachers that were just unfair, you know, um, that were like objectively unfair and unreasonable. I know that she'll just... She'll be like, you know, my teacher's mental health is more important. This is this is just a complaint that doesn't need to go anywhere. Mm. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, it was. It was a striking moment for me this school year, because it was like if even in this historical moment in our nation. Parents can still be so upset by discussing race. Yeah. What are we really I mean. How are we going to fight this fight if we have no frame of reference for what the battlefield really looks like? You know, like I keep seeing all these posts online and, you know, people keep having these conversations about how important this con this stuff is and how people mm -hmm. really care and are trying to do the right thing and trying to learn and stuff. And yeah. it's almost like we're becoming a big echo chamber. And I think the danger that I'm noticing is 
that the people, the dissenting minority is going to become silent again. I don't think the last four years have been some sudden upwelling of disregard for the notion of progress and equality. I think that's always been there. It's just that that movement didn't feel as empowered to speak until now. Mm-hmm. So if we don't go about having meaningful conversations in a more inclusive and effective way, in other words, encouraging people who disagree to speak and then discuss rather than burying those opinions, I don't know if the last four years won't happen again. It's all, yeah, that question of like, we all say we want to have uncomfortable conversations, but then the moment it gets uncomfortable, the default reaction is to disengage, right? It's like, yeah. um, you know, I, I don't want to speak for the parent, but I will. Um, I would, I could imagine, right, for them, they're like, oh, they talked to their son about, you know, Black Lives Matter and this movement and how, and how like, yeah, like Black Lives Matter, like, yes, of course they do. But then when they start seeing it in their son's writing and when their son maybe starts questioning, I I mean, I don't know the specifics of what you taught, but when your son is maybe like maybe policing is unjust in this country or maybe our tax dollars need to start going somewhere else. Maybe public education itself is built upon practices that are systemically unjust and racist. Maybe, you know, then the parents go like, whoa, yeah, I'm not comfortable anymore. Um, Stay in your lane. Right. Yeah. Because I I think, like, we just did this thing at the school where it was optional for students to attend, right? Um, But students could come and learn about some of the, like, practices that led our community to be what it is. And this lesson that the administration put together gave historical evidence and documentation of how redlining led to our suburbs as we know it. Hmm. And how, you know, people of color are still given different rates and opportunities to even afford to live in the community ways that are that are overtly discriminatory right but the thing about those lessons is i mean i thought it was a great lesson but the thing about those lessons is it forces you to recognize that even if you don't have substantive prejudice in your heart you still benefit from prejudice practices And what do you do with that realization? Because everyone needs to believe that they're the good guy. What do you do if now you have to face that you're, you might be good, but you still benefited from bad. And if you benefit from bad and don't do anything about it, are you good? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, but that's the stuff that's hard because if you're going to do something about that kind of bad, where do we even start? What are you going to do? You're going to sell your house. You know, you're going to upset your livelihood. Those are much harder conversations. Those are much harder things, pills to swallow. I've been vibing so much with this, this, this thing from the Bible where Jesus tells everyone to like, you know, like follow him and he'll make you fishes of men. Right. And it's like, man, the notion of acting in faith in that way and -hmm. really putting your heart out. So it was a sermon we listened to the other day where they were like the, the wisdom of heaven is peculiar to men. It doesn't make sense to human reasoning. It's backwards. Yeah. Because human reasoning says that if you do wrong or if you're benefiting from something that is wrong, don't say anything about it. You got to get ahead. It's a capitalist society. We, I mean, it's what we're taught, right? Oh, equal education opportunities for everyone. Okay. Well, then why is MC free 
and Harvard is not. Mm. You know, like why why does our school you know the crazy thing? I'm sorry, I'm like talking so much, but when you get me no. thinking about it, Tony, man, it's like <laughs> You know, it's like the, the thing that really hit me the other day is like, say, hypothetically speaking, say the African-American History Museum in D.C. reopens, but it only reopens for school groups. Right. That are that are paying this premium to be able to go and visit. Right. Exclusive access, we'll say. What do you do with the fact that my school's community of largely white, of largely white population, right, of, of affluent people could definitely afford to go? that there are reserves from the PTA that could easily cover that trip. But the students at your school, Tony, would, might struggle with that. You know, mm-hmm. like how, how, is that, how is it that a school, in, a public school in D.C. is going to struggle to pay that premium? Yeah. But my school in the suburbs that has very few black students would easily be able to go. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I know I would have students who wouldn't be able to make it because they have to work in the middle of this pandemic. Like they are out there, like in person working, right? At post offices, restaurants, doing delivery, like all these things. Like I have students that have to support their families, you know? That's brutal. And you're right. That gap is so huge. That gap is so huge. And we don't live across the country from each other. These schools are not very far from each other, no. but the gap is, seems like it's worlds away. And it's depressing because the system as we know it, I mean, you, you're on the inside, you've seen it before. There are a lot more measures to establish the appearance of closing the achievement gap rather than yeah. actually closing the achievement gap. Yeah. It's because closing the achievement gap is hard. It's not dissimilar to these discussions on race, you know, like, Mm, yeah, make it appear like you're having meaningful conversations. But if there's a difficult, a truly complex and difficult conversation that needs to be had, let's, uh, hey, Mr. Shao, just like back off of that for a little bit. You know, like we got some parents, they're making some complaints. Let's just redirect it. What about like, uh, let's get an assembly going. You know, don't talk about it in your class anymore. Let's just have an assembly, you know. But it's interesting because I started teaching this class called Media and Society. And have you ever, I don't know if you've ever seen that Wong Fu production Yappy on YouTube. Yes, I, I have. have yeah. All right. So yeah. for the past two years with Media and Society, I've used Yappy um, to have conversations with my students. And it's cool because that last episode, the argument that our main character has with that um, that guy at the party, I can't remember his name, but he's a real jerk, right? But they both kind of go at each other. One person is from this like Asian-American perspective. The other guy's from an African-American perspective. And they're just, they pretty much get into that Olympics of suffering argument, right? Yes, yes. And my students and I talked about that for so long because technically neither of them is wrong in that discussion but neither of them is fully right either. And a really substantive conversation is bogged down by the noise of anger and anguish. Mm. And so we kicked that around. We, Angela and I actually had the opportunity to meet uh, the Wong Fu production team a while back. Oh, very cool. And like, it was at this Q&A, right? And, we, and I stood up and asked him, like, what suggestions do you have for using this 
the Yappy series for instruction at a mostly affluent, mostly white community. And looking back, I can see why he was kind of staggered by the question because like, who's, I mean, that was an unfair question to ask in that scenario, but I just remember feeling like why it's weird that I have to constantly filter important messages so that students who may not have a similar frame of reference at all will be willing to hear some modicum of the importance. See, that's so hard because I feel like it's that it's that balancing game that you have to play between how much can you shave off parts of that conviction while still remaining true or risking not doing it enough and then just whoever's hearing it just shuts off and completely doesn't engage it's always like that it's kind of just you're constantly doing like a cost benefit you know sort of analysis there yeah i find myself doing that yeah yeah sorry i didn't mean to cut you off but yeah i just find myself doing that so often not really as a teacher um but just in church settings you know at g trip like in small groups my small group members probably wouldn't believe it because i feel like i kind of go off to them every week but i hold back a lot in small groups you know um so it's like i find myself doing that so often in like honestly mostly among like you know fellow christians um so yeah and and it's like i don't know i feel like it's worth sitting on that for for a moment because it's like why why is that the case you know why why do i feel that way mostly with you know in the the church um don't know i mean actually no i do but i i don't know if we want to get into um exactly you know, the forces that kind of cause that. But I guess we're talking about uncomfortable conversations. So maybe That's we just right. go there, you That's know, because, right. um, you know, I think I've been thinking a lot about just what what does it mean to be? Because I you mentioned earlier when you're describing your school, you said the word progressive, right? Like, what does it mean to be like progressive? And, you know, I think in a lot of ways, I would call myself progressive, maybe politically, but at the same time, there are a lot of like shortfalls in terms of maybe not progressivism as, as a concept, but progressives as people. And in terms of like what you were talking about, a lot of it is just, Hey, I think, I think the right things and I say the right things, So I'm good. I checked off that box. And I don't need to do anything else, you know, and maybe this I don't know if this is a call out to anyone specifically, but maybe, you know, when I see the G trip emails, I click on the listen and learn and I watched three things. I read two books. I'm good now. You know, I like I'm good. I don't need to do any more. Right. And we're good because now I know for sure that I'm not a racist. I know for sure that I've rooted out some of my prejudice. So I guess my work is done here you know, and I'll just continue living the rest of my life pretty much the same way. Exactly. Um, Yeah. And it, and it, it weighs on the heart, right? Because like, it's like the, one of the big things that you and I got to remember that everyone has to remember is even as you're trying to navigate these conversations, the first filter that you're moving through is your own insecurity. Like we're all, we all doubt ourselves all the time about how we're navigating these conversations or whether we're saying the right thing yeah. or handling it the right way. Right. Like, yeah. and for me, 
first of all, I am I am one of very few black people in my church. And as much as it stinks to say it, like I'm never not aware that I'm one of very few black people in my church. And this isn't that some, this isn't anyone's fault. But I have internalized in me from years of being the only black person in my higher education programs, in mm. my AP classes, in my church, on my weightlifting team and this and that. I have internalized in me this notion that I have a responsibility to uphold the perception of excellence, mm. you know, and so I don't want to. I feel so weak saying it, but I don't want to offend people. And I and it frustrates me that I have to own that. But it's the truth. Even while mm. we're talking about having uncomfortable conversations, I still don't want to offend people. That's not my intent. Right. It's not my goal. But it's like, it's caused me so much stress in the last few months. This awareness that my fear of upsetting people cannot outweigh God's mission for me. Mm. Um. But yeah, like people who have done a lot to to do soul searching lately in the last several months have also some of them have been people who have said some pretty messed up stuff to me um, in my church. Not many. Don't get me wrong. It's not like everyone's a bad person in church. It's like but it's just like two or three unfortunate encounters that stay in my mind. And like those people, I'm sure, don't realize that they said it or what what they said meant. But talk about an uncomfortable conversation. How do you broach that discussion with them? Right. You know, and, and also, if I broach that discussion, is that really about helping them to be better or about helping me to feel vindicated or to feel empowered again? You know, and why should my desire to to re-empower myself outweigh their chance to grow? Why should if I'm if I'm only trying to re-empower myself, why should I? seek to potentially cause harm to others but then again it's like well why should i feel like i need to tiptoe around people who have been in the wrong who have mm. been the in the insensitive or have said the cruel thing why do i still have to be careful with my language why can't i express my anger and my frustration why can't i say yeah the church as a, as a system is moving too slow and has been on the wrong side of history. Why is it that that has to be something that we don't fully acknowledge unless it's in the right setting? Why isn't every setting the right setting? Yeah. But instead, I should probably just quiet down a little. Just tailor how I deliver the message. Wait for progress, right? Everyone says, just wait a little more. People are there and they're getting ready. All right, James Baldwin's the one who was like, how much longer do I need to wait for yes. your progress, right? Exactly. I don't know. But again, I'm still afraid to upset anyone, even as I say all this. You just get me carried away, Tony. That's what it is. Oh, no, I'm just trying to get you to say what's on your heart. That's all I ever want from you. Right? <laughs> yeah, oh, man. But no, that's those are such good thoughts. And those are that's really challenging. And, and I hope that's really challenging for anyone listening, you know, because, yeah, Omar, I feel like I I feel the same way, but obviously in a different context, because within G-Trip, I am not, you know, a racial minority. I am part of the, you know, racial and ethnic majority in this church. Um, so I feel like in a lot of ways, I'm 
I guess we're just going to name things that are unnamed. Right. But it's like mm-hmm. within the culture of like a church that is predominantly, you know, Korean and Chinese American that the culture kind of defaults to those sorts of norms, um, whatever those may be. I guess it's just what I've always grown up with, what I've always known. And so for me, it's easier to break those norms, right? Because I very much think that there are some norms that are absolutely not worth upholding, especially with things on the line such as like racial justice, right? Things on the line such as we've been talking about education, right? We've been, we mentioned housing, we mentioned these important things that should be rights to all people. So yeah, like, am I going to just like conform to a norm of agreeableness if, if that if that's what goes to the wayside, no, absolutely not. Right. So I think in some ways, since I am like an Asian American male in a church space, yeah, I feel a little more comfortable doing so. Um, and I don't know what there is to say about that. I don't know if I had a point there, but you know, it's just to acknowledge. Yeah. Like, I guess I have a question for you, Omari. That's, that's um, really important. What you just said, I think. Yeah. please. Um, I just, you know, cause you said you've been coming to G G trip for like three years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious as to if you've thought about leaving, you know, because as somebody who is in a space that constantly makes you feel like you're kind of, I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth and be like on guard or just, you just feel like, you know, there's a difference, right? If you've ever thought about leaving or if you've ever thought about finding a space where you feel more at home, right? Because I know in my experience, um, when I went to school in Nashville, I went to a couple churches that the vast majority were like, you know, young, white. I think they would call themselves liberal. I think I would not call them liberal. Uh, but I left those spaces because I got sick of them, you know? So, yeah, Omari, I'm just wondering what your kind of journey has been there. It's been tough. Like, I'll level with you. Like, it, I hadn't thought of leaving until my wife brought it up. Um, and if you if you know my wife, Angela, then I hope you realize how big a deal is that she was the one who asked me if I want to go because mm. she's been at the church for so long and she really loves it here. But I was suffering pretty badly. Um, it's not like I was like gnashing my teeth and tearing my hair out, but I was just in this general state of uh, what's, what's, what's even the word for it. I just didn't believe in anything and it was profound and pervasive. And I would get up and I was going through motions and I was just quiet and dejected and Angela could see how bad it was getting for me. So she was the one who asked me. And I, I thought about it. My immediate answer was, I was like surprised. I was like, what? No. Why would I? Then I thought about it, right? And it was like, maybe. But the reason that I'm not going to go is twofold. First of all, I don't know what church I can find where I'm going to feel at home if it's not here. Even if I go to a predominantly black church, which I'm sure a lot of listeners and no shade at you guys, but I'm sure a lot of listeners default to thinking, well, if you went to a black church, maybe you'd feel better. Why? I've never really felt at home in, in a lot of my black communities and environments. You know, I was the kid who was the weird one in high school because I got 
good grades and everyone would make fun of me, call me an Oreo, right? Which is a whole another mm. conversation that I'm sure y'all have had at some point in your life, listeners, right? But mm. even if I go to another church, there's no guarantee that it's going to be any better for me there. And people have shown a lot of love at GCCC. But also, yeah. I've left a lot of things that made me unhappy in my life. Um, and I feel like this church is worth fighting for. I want to commit here, you know, even if it's hard, like there are people like, I mean, pastor Tracy has been incredible. The things that he and I have talked about and, you know, Tony, you know, you're off the chain, you know, um, people have been stepping up and, you know, I've gotten to talk with people and grow with them. And if I leave this church because of my deep frustration and sorrow at how slow we're moving, the glacial pace at which we're moving towards progress, I think that if I went searching for a quote unquote better scenario, I must be expecting to find human beings that are perfect. Because mm. my church community has been as close to idyllic for me so far. So I want to fight here. That's beautiful. And wow. Yeah, I heard this. I have no idea at this point where this came from, uh, but it, it's essentially uh, this was told to me um, as I was kind of graduating and looking for churches. People were just like, hey, um, don't try to look for a perfect church, because if you think you found one, um, it's not going to be perfect anymore once you join it. You know, it's just like, yeah, the perfect church does not exist. Right. The the you know, the church that you call home is not the most perfect one. I th it's the one that you, like you said very well, it's the one that you believe in. It's the one where you find people who will empower you and believe in you and talk with you and, and, and just be real with you. You know, it's, it's those kinds of spaces. And I, I definitely do agree with you like GCCC on many levels is, is that, um, you know, I haven't been going to the church as long as you have, but uh, I've definitely felt that. Uh, for people like I, yeah. de I definitely agree with you, you know, and you know, you know what, you know what, who jumped out based on what you were saying is, uh, I mean, I don't know if I'm supposed to be throwing names out, but there are these people at the church named Job and Rachel, this couple, right? Job and Rachel. And it's cool because Rachel has such a big heart and she's messaged me a lot about, you know, like a lot of this stuff happening and it's been so sincere and private that you can't help but feel like she's not doing it just because of the moment. She really cares, right? And then Job, meanwhile, he's quieter, but he's very thoughtful. Mm. And what I was really struck by with Job is that even if he wasn't sharing stuff with me as often as his wife was, he kept coming to all of those confronting race groups. And I wouldn't know he was coming. And then he would just be there every time. And sometimes Rachel was busy with the kids, but Job by himself would still show up. And then a few days later, and this is what really got me. A few days later, just like before the summer, Job would text me out of nowhere with an anime suggestion, <laughs> which I loved. Because for funny. me, I mean, it sounds crazy, but the truth is that a lot of the people who, when you start talking about these things with and show them that you really genuinely care, they'll assume that that's all you are anymore. Mm. Not consciously, but suddenly you'll notice that the only conversations you have with them are on justice. But I honor the people who can still have these kinds of conversations and still see a person's conviction and still remember that they're a human being beyond it. Yeah, absolutely.
And I feel like, you know, recently I've been challenged to kind of reimagine what it looks like to like fully embrace people and fully love people. Um, And this is coming in context of I think there are, you know, people that I know or honestly archetypes of people that I see that I don't fully love or fully embrace. Um, Like that parent that you mentioned before, I've never had an experience like that with a parent, but that's because my student population is, is very different. Right. But I, I, I don't know that parent, but I do know that parent, you know, I know that thinking, I know that. And I just can't help, but almost kind of in a way dehumanize that thinking into just, Oh yeah, this is just what rich white people do. You know, this is just what rich white liberalism means. And that's what it is. And let's just throw that in the trash and move on, you know. Um, And I have to find myself, I have to fight that impulse because I absolutely want to do that. Believe me, I want to do that with and with a lot of people. But that's not that's not how Jesus walked on this earth. That's not how Jesus built the kingdom. And that's not how Jesus calls us to build the kingdom, unfortunately, because I wish it was the other way around, because that'd be so much easier. Honestly, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like I wish I could just rain down fire on certain people. Yeah, but I can't. I mean, that's what the right. That's like that's that's really what reconciliation healing means. And I think that's one of the hardest thing that God calls upon us to do is reconcile you know, reconcile with one another, reconcile with our, with ourselves. There was this scenario, this situation a couple of years back where a couple of white students painted their faces black and wrote, wear N-words, posted on social media in our school. And um, oh a lot of students were outraged, right? And yeah. I was furious and I was even angrier when I, because I had a strong feeling that the powers that be were just going to let it go. You know, like slap them on the wrist a few days out and then you can come back to school. Um, and in my other elective culture and literature, this class of like 35 kids at the time, there was this one young lady who's very, very quiet, right? She's in my AP line class too. And she missed a lot of her homework. She was out a lot. She was like the only black student that I had in my AP classes that year. Um, and she was also in culture and literature. She didn't say much throughout the classes, but when this happened, I was like, well, we're reading this book, this British play called Sing Your Hearts Out for the Lads, and it's all about race and justice, right? So I can't, this moment can't happen, and Mr. James just doesn't say anything about it, right? We had a long conversation about it in the class, and it was this huge, rich, powerful discussion. But I was, like, asking them, like, what do you all think I am supposed to feel as a black man, as a black teacher in a predominantly white school how do you think i'm supposed to respond in this moment and they were like well you should be outraged you'd be frustrated it's okay if you're mad blah, blah, blah. but this young lady starts crying and she's like i'm so frustrated and i'm so mad about this happening but before i had this class i thought that no one cared about me at this school and it was just this powerful moment man where she starts talking about how tony she doesn't talk revolution She doesn't talk rage. She talks reconciliation. She starts talking about how what if we have a moment where we can actually practice restorative justice, don't we have a responsibility to? And she was like, even if I'm angry at those two kids, does that mean that they don't deserve a chance to become better? 
And she was like, and can't we all become better by giving them that chance too? And I was gobsmacked. Wow. I felt like I had been schooled so hard by this kid who hadn't said anything in my, and I can't, con- I can't convey it as eloquently or as sincerely as she did, other than to say, if you imagine Martin Luther King Jr. speaking from his heart off the cuff, that's exactly what this kid sounded like. Exactly. I couldn't believe it. I called her mom right after class and was like, can I write your daughter a college rec? Because I just saw everything I need to see. It was amazing. And I don't think I'll forget that moment as long as I live. I pray I don't forget it. It was the biggest it's illustration of the Christian ideal that I'd ever seen. Personally. It was amazing. Wow. I'm just going to let that sit. I'm just going to let that sit for a few seconds for everyone listening. Wow. That's I that's amazing. I feel like I can't imagine what you experienced as a teacher in that room in that moment. Just the utter like, oh, this is that's it. It's yeah. just awe inspiring. Yeah. You know. Wow. Wow. And for this for her to say it through tears, right? And still grappling with her frustrations, but to still believe in a greater good and that that human beings can be more that we're called to be more so when i called her mom i was so honored not i was not uns- i mean i was i was surprised and i was deeply honored to hear her mom speak of her faith and how she had raised her daughter wow i mean because i didn't know the kid was christian but it was a, it was a beautiful moment. It was an incredible, easily the best moment of the year was that, that, that wasn't even delivered by Mr. James. Mr. James was on the wrong side of it. <laughs> wow, man. One of our kids one day is going to solve all of our problems. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's why we're doing it. Right. <laughs> I mean, just hoping just hoping Absolutely. that someone's going to start getting it a little bit more right. That's all, that's all yeah. we're doing. Yeah. But I guess like the takeaway from that is like, you don't, we don't have to be perfect in having these conversations. None of us has the answer. None of us knows exactly how to handle this and our insecurities aren't totally unfounded. But the point is just that we have to show up. We have to talk and we have, there does require a certain level of vulnerability. We have to be okay with getting it wrong a little bit. And we have to be forgiving of others for getting it wrong a little bit. Yeah. We can't talk about improving ourselves and, and justice and love and then fire and brimstone someone for getting it wrong. And I'm talking to myself too. I think you're talking to me too. I hear that. I hear that too. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, uh, that's absolutely. Yeah. hundred percent. Actually you sharing that kind of triggered something that I also experienced, not on that level at all. This actually didn't even happen in the classroom. This happened um, actually at my old high school, the high school that I went to. Um, For those of y'all listening, I went to Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology. It is a very, yeah, it's like if you grew up in the area, you hear those words and you kind of, you already thinking a certain thing, right? And it's, it's a very selective STEM magnet school. It is public. But in all ways, it is one of the most absurd and well-funded and well-resourced public schools in the country. Um, 
And uh, I grad, I, I went there. I graduated in 2014, but it's not about that. It's about I'm on the alumni page. Um, and this summer, I saw a post um, on the alumni page about this seven-page Google document that I've just kind of been circulating around, and it was written by um, a rising senior at TJ, uh, and she is one of I think five or six. Uh, black students in the class, right? Which if you know TJ, five or six is just about, wow. you know, the most, yeah. <laughs> you know, black students get into that school because demographically TJ is roughly, it's like 60, 70% Asian, Asian American, 20-ish, the 30% white, and then everyone else is like percentage points, right? Um, but anyway, she wrote like a seven page Google document about her experience being black at TJ and how she just heard boys in the hallway talking about how they wouldn't be caught dead dating a black girl, like Asian boys, how she, you know, heard so often like the N word being thrown around, right? How she um, was just always, you know, no one ever assumed that she was extremely capable in her math classes, that she was extremely capable in her engineering classes because she didn't look like what all the other students look like, which the vast majority were, you know, Asian American, you know, kids. And so it was the most open and grueling. And, you know, none of it was a surprise to me because I was in that environment. And if I was to be honest, I was probably one of those boys when I was 14, 15, 16, 17. Like I was right. Um, so yeah, none of it surprised me, but it still broke my heart reading it. Right. And especially as somebody who, you know, it would be one thing if she wrote it as she graduated and no, all, like she was a rising senior. She's still going to be at the, she's at, she's a senior right now, you know? So as soon as I read it, I like, I, I, I messaged her on Facebook and I was just like, this is, I thank you for sharing continue to speak truth to power. And I kind of told her a little bit about me in terms of like, I am now an educator and you as somebody who did this is just so powerful. I admire you so much, like your TE, all that stuff. And just, we, you know, she responded back and we kind of just had this little conversation about, you know, like experiences of TJ, et cetera. And like, what struck me though, was how she was so, like she had all of those terrible experiences and she had so much reason to hate those people who said those things, you know, about her or or prejudiced against her, that racism, like straight up, right, that she experienced. But what she messaged me was, I would like to know more about the Asian American experience. And I would like to know more about how in those ways, like Asian Americans have been oppressed in this country and then how that happens to you know, bleed into like this environment at TJ. And I was just like, really? Like, yeah. that's what you want to know right now? Like, you're not, you don't want, like, that's, that's what you want to know. And that just shocked me because I think if the car, like if I was in that situation, I would not care to know. I really wouldn't. And so, yeah, it was just a really shocking, you know, reversal that shows so much, like humanity and consideration. Um, and I think we could all use a little bit more of that. I could definitely use a little bit more of that. So absolutely. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's like, you think about that and it's like, 
I think back on the person I was in high school and I just shudder, right? And it's like, absolutely. What kind of titanic individuals walk among us that kids can be willing to have that much kindness and compassion and perspective, you know? And and even now, so many of us adults are are like, well, why should I this? Or why should I that? Why should I be the one who has to? And if that's the, the question that we're starting to formulate, I think our answer as believers is, because God wants it for us. I want to say it's because he expects it of us, but I don't think he knows that we're all broken and flawed, right? But it's because he wants it for us. He knows we can be that. Yeah. What other reason do we really need? Yeah. And I have hope that we can move towards that. Not just towards getting more information on spreading awareness of what injustices exist, but doing so with a heart oriented towards forgiveness and reconciliation. And even as I struggle with that, I still have hope because to me, in my opinion, the absence of hope to some degree for the believer is a bit arrogant because if we don't have hope, that means that we don't believe God can change the circumstance and he can. He's shown us enough times that he can. And this may be bad. This may be terrible. 2020 may be real, real hard. But it's not for always. And even 2020, he can use for the better. Yeah. Amen. And I, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to kick off a whole nother thing here, but I will say when you, when you sent me the link to the first episode, for the podcast series, I was like about to start training. Right. Um, and so during the session, instead of listening to music or something, I actually listened to the podcast. So when I was texting uh-huh. you, I was texting you in between sets and getting mm-hmm. like chalk all over my phone. But it was, there were some things that were said that were just so powerful. And one thing that was said that I've since used as a discussion point in my classroom, someone brought up how their parents, had lived through riots and like had personally had to fight against black people to protect their shops and their, their goods. Right. And they were like, how the point was, how do you try to talk to someone who has had a lived experience that to them reinforces their prejudices? And that is, that's exactly the kind of hard conversations and questions I want to hear more of. Because eat for weeks, I thought about that and mulled it over. And I, I still am coming up with, I'm not totally sure. And I put it to my students without having an answer because I think that they're better for knowing the question exists too. But those questions, people, even if we don't have the answers, if we don't come up with a solution in the podcast episode, like, man, how much better off are we for even mulling that over? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Those are the hard conversations that are worth discussing more. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point, because sometimes it's not even what is said in the discussion. It's the question that's asked, Mm because so often even the question that's asked isn't, you know, it's revolution itself. Exactly. I guess I don't know if there's anything else on your mind, Omari, but um, how can the how can G-Trip, let's just be specific, right? How how can G-Trip be more uncomfortable? What are the things that can happen to to make that the case, whether that's from from you or me or the pastors or people in the congregation? 
what what does that look like you know in, in my opinion from the last several months the most powerful moments have come from people not just participating in the discussions but being willing to share their insecurities and their prejudices frankly you know not not to reinforce them but to own them and i don't mean saying like yeah like i have this general prejudice or like this is that's happened and i was grown up to be raised like that's helpful but when people shared exactly some of the, the perspectives they've had and the experiences they've had where they had a prejudice thought i mean that concrete example provides a certain level of vulnerability that just inspires trust and a desire to go deeper in everyone involved. You know, that's why so many of the effective initiatives on reconciliation and growth require small groups of people to share things. We have to all be willing to share a little bit more and protect ourselves a little bit less. You know, like read something that challenges your sense of self. And then discuss it with someone specifically how it challenged you and watch how both of you can grow and then be willing to do the same with someone else. Show up for things, you know, like be active in your changing, not passive. Don't let it surprise you. Pursue it. Watch things. YouTube is uh, is like a real resource for a lot of powerful conversations. And I would love to see that brought in more for, for, you know, like church initiatives, concrete things that we can really sink our teeth into. And it doesn't have to be hyper intellectual content. It can just be real content, courageous conversation. What is, what is it called? Uncomfortable conversations with a black man. The Yappy series, which is fundamentally um, parental advisory, by the way, on Yappy. But, you know, like it's a fundamentally comedy series but it still asks really powerful conversations that's good material to for for launching meaningful dialogue too right all american boys we mentioned um sit down and read letter for birmingham jail again read it in the context of this last year and just let it sink in for you how accurate that letter is 50 60 years later it'll blow you away but again Take action after you've read it. Pursue someone to have a conversation and unpack it with them and ask questions on the things you didn't understand. I want to hear so much more about the Asian and Asian American perspectives that have led to this historical moment. My greatest growths in the last few months have been about learning about the perspectives of other communities. I don't fully know my own, but I'm ready to learn about others. And I hope others would say the same. It's sad. But there's still a lot of the fundamental, like, foundation building to be done. Omari, I think you just named exactly what it entails in the, in the future, in the coming days, weeks, months. Like, it is, it is all of that. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you nailed it. I got nothing to add to that. So thank you for that. I feel like that two-minute section should just be clipped <laughs> out. And just played in front of like every single sermon, every single virtual sermon at you trip. Like just just as a weekly reminder, do all of those things <laughs> and then we can talk. <laughs> yeah, just remember, I also mentioned the parental advisory on Yappy, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's yeah. that's 
great. That's great. Cause actually the, um, as we kind of, you know, wrap up our conversation, cause we have been talking for kind of a while now, um, which is amazing. Every single second has been wonderful. I, uh, <laughs> tip, typically one of the last things, uh, me and Rebecca, we always ask whoever is just, um, what is, you know, something that you've watched, read, or listened to recently that you would recommend to people listening but I think you already did that. <laughs> you already recommended a whole bunch of things, you know, very specific, you know, sources and things to watch and to read. So, um, you know, I don't know if you had any more you wanted to add. There's no limit to the number of things you could recommend. Uh, but if not, then. Um, I would you know what comes to my mind? The last thing that Netflix documentary 13th. It will knock your socks off. It has so much specific, concrete, historical information to establish the machine at work over the last several decades in this country, but also illustrate some of the most incredible people who have worked to slow the onslaught. It's, it's, it is brilliant. I want to say it's brilliant. It is, but it's concrete. It's concrete. Oh my gosh. I have a, <laughs> Yeah, if you watch 13th, be ready to be radicalized. <laughs> Let's just say that. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Actually, no. yeah, I have a bit, I have like an experience with watching that movie because that um, documentary actually came out, I think, my junior year in, in college. Um, but actually, at the time, I had been taking a class, a sociology class called Prison Life. Mm. Um, and it was taught by this sociology professor, um, this black man who had been studying like incarceration rates in prisons. And like he's his thesis was entitled Black Rage. And he's just been doing this work his entire life. And so he's teaching this class at a book called Prison Life. Yeah. And um, I, I look back at certain things that happened in my life or certain things that I was exposed to that just really shifted my entire worldview. That class was like 1000% one of those things. And like 13 dropped kind of like in the middle of that semester while I was taking that class. And it was just incredible just to know that like I had already, the statistics I had already written down in my notes somewhere, right? The history I had written down that quote from, um, uh, I think it was what Richard Nixon's advisor, like just explicitly saying, yeah, like on the record, just saying, isn't that like, crazy? We can't let's, you yeah. know, destabilize the black family by criminalizing drugs. Oh, yeah. Gosh. Yeah. And let's, and let's use yeah. these coded terms because now you exactly. can't say this. So let's use these terms like thug and blah, blah, blah. And then everyone will kind of internalize what we're trying to get about. Not even like them quoting or saying yeah. that he said it, yeah. but the actual audio recordings of these people saying it was just, yeah. that's what I mean by it being concrete. Exactly. You know, it's, it's proof exactly. positive that the machine is at work. And, and that's not, that's the end goal of knowing is not to point fingers and say, this is why we have to burn it down, but we have to have that concrete foundation through which we can say, this is how fallen we are. Now we have to work to be better. This isn't some conspiracy theory or something we can vaguely set aside as something for tomorrow or the next generation. This yeah. is a now issue. This is a yesterday issue. And justice is yes. very much yes. in Amen. God's province. Amen. Absolutely. 
yeah, that documentary is so powerful. It is, it, it, it definitely changed, right? The way that I see, honestly, the way that I just engage in, in anything in general, because I think fundamentally it shifted my view of, I think I used to think that the world was kind of, the world was kind of all right. And that there were just some things that were kind of, you know, messed up in the middle and like probably because people just neglected it or, you know, people just weren't they weren't thinking very well about this. So that's why, you know, um, you know, incarceration rates for black men is like almost, you know, one in three. That's why, you know, policing these things happen. Mm -hmm. But that's not true. Right. Like when people say that, you know, there is systemic failure, systemic injustice, when people say like, oh, the system has failed, let's say black people, I question whether the system was ever designed for black people to succeed in the first place. Right. Like, oh, oh, don't hurt him now, Tony. Okay, You know, maybe the system is doing exactly what it was designed to do. Wow. And that's not a conspiracy, like you said, because there have been people on record saying that that was the plan from the very beginning. Maybe the system doesn't need to be remade. The system needs to be destroyed, gone away with so that we can build the foundation of a better and just system. You know, like I at a certain point don't see the value in holding on to what has never been good for people in the first place. You know. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Mic drop on that. <laughs> I guess that is a good place to end um, on the podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I thank you so much, Omar, for just, you know, coming on here and speaking so much truth and being so vulnerable and being so honest. That's what we need more of. I'm honored, man. Dude, I'm, I'm so honored that you asked me. I mean... I love having these conversations with you. It's it's always a it's always a trip. You it know? Always, yeah, that's for sure. No doubt. That's for sure. Yeah. And hey, if you ever want to. Oh, first thing I'm going to do. I was going to say the first thing I'm going to do when we get off is I'm going to go tell Angela what you just said. About oh, that, gosh. That system. That's that that just is awesome. <laughs> yeah. I have my moments every once in a while. Something kind of comes <laughs> out, you know, just, uh, <laughs> wow. but yeah. No, oh gosh, yeah. Thank you so much, honestly. And if you ever want to hop on again, please let's. We can absolutely make that happen. Yeah, yeah. I'd be happy to. And I, yeah, man. Like, shout out to Rebecca too because she was one of the most impactful people that we met in the uh, those sessions. So I'm, I was so hyped to hear that you guys were starting this process. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, she's been great through the whole thing. I bet. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I guess otherwise, you know, we're good here. Uh, yeah, I just, how, how was that for you? How did you feel? Yeah.